The first reading comes from Luke chapter 7, verse 18 to 28, and can be found on page 1035 in the church Bible. Jesus and John the Baptist. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to do? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The second lesson is taken from Mark chapter 11, verse 27 on page 1017, 1017. Mark 11, verse 27. The authority of Jesus questioned. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thou who art loved beyond all telling, Saviour and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art love. 
beyond all telling, Saviour and King, we worship Thee. Heavenly Father, may we indeed tell of your amazing love in Jesus born in Bethlehem. Amen. Well, if you'd turn to that uh, gospel reading from Mark, we're in our series in Mark, and it's Mark chapter 11, uh, page 1017, with the title, By What Authority? By What Authority? Well, identity theft is the curse of the modern age. It's the other side of the many benefits, of course, that come from the World Wide Web. Someone can hack into your email account and assume your identity. And as a result, of course, they are not who they say they are. And in a sense, the religious authorities we've just read about faced a similar problem in our reading from Mark's Gospel. Surely Jesus was assuming a false identity, an identity that he had been sent by God, and as far as they were concerned, that could not possibly be true. He simply didn't match their expectations. In addition, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had provoked their hostility. So their first implicit question was this, and it's my first point, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing? A little earlier, Mark wrote in verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. What did this carpenter's son with no theological education or authorization by the religious establishment think he was doing. Now it's helpful if we understand that the temple area involved was the court of the Gentiles and was the only area where Gentiles could gather for prayer and to worship God. And so worshippers coming from around the ancient world for the great festivals like the Passover had to buy animals that were of the right quality for sacrifice and they had to be bought there and money changed in the local currency to pay the temple tax. And rather like the airport, you did not get a good exchange because they made money on it. And as if his interpretation of the trade, uh, interruption of the trade wasn't bad enough, Jesus, verse 16, prevented people taking what was a shortcut through the temple area on the way between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And so in shop terms, footfall was also directly affected, which of course had a knock-on effect of people being able to buy and sell. So of course, his unofficial intervention must have caused the religious establishment financial loss as well. And this latest outburst was just another one to add to the list that Jesus had been responsible for. There were, for example, the extraordinary incidents that we've considered earlier in Mark. There was the calming of the storm, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, and the healing of the demon-possessed boy. And it's likely that these religious leaders would have formed an impression of Jesus that he was a controversial figure, possibly even dangerous. 
because no doubt word of mouth, that most efficient form of communication, had brought them news of Jesus' various doings. And Jesus was difficult to handle because of his close links with John the Baptist, a greatly revered and respected religious leader, but also, in the establishment's view, another controversial figure. And so the religious establishment faced a very difficult problem. They couldn't control Jesus. And then as now, the elites could not afford to ignore the opinion of the mass of people. And so if their first implicit question was, what do you think you're doing? The second question, more explicitly, was, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do this? He was an uneducated, unimportant person from an unimportant part of the world, from an unimportant family. So why was he carrying out an official act in the temple when he had no authority to do so? The Sanhedrin, that's the religious establishment, was very jealous of its position and had already asked John the Baptist exactly the same question, John chapter 1, and also Jesus earlier in his ministry. By what authority are you doing these things? And of course, if Jesus was acting on his own authority, then he was either mad or by claiming to act on God's authority... And as that wasn't possible, as far as they were concerned, they could arrest him on a charge of blasphemy because, of course, God would never give permission for a disturbance in the temple. And Jesus replies to their question with his own question. Verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Well, that was awkward to put it mildly. Because they were only faced with one of two alternatives. Either John's ministry was, was inspired by God, or it was purely inspired by John. That is, John was claiming something about himself, that he was the one preparing the way of the Lord the prophets had prophesied about when he was not. A form of identity theft again, if you like. And Jesus' question implied that if John's authority was divine, then so was his, because John pointed to him. Now you can see the dilemma they faced. And that was just at the very moment when the religious authorities had thought they had all the cards in their hands. They've got him. And Jesus asks him his question. Verse 31, you can see how delicious it is. If we say from heaven, he, Jesus, will ask, then why didn't you believe, John? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. Incidentally, in Scripture, isn't it? If we say from men, dot, 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 we fill in the blanks. And the people were in no doubt that John the Baptist was truly and divinely inspired. And verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. 
the coward's way out? We don't know because if we give an answer, that has huge implications. And it might mean we were wrong. And no one likes to be wrong. And so Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. But we must note this was no simple matter of debate. It was far more serious. In the temple, Jesus reminds everyone of Isaiah's words. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus' accusation was that by allowing the one place where anyone could worship God to become a marketplace, the Sanhedrin were no better than thieves. And the religious establishment understood the seriousness of Jesus' accusation, nothing less than the undermining of their authority. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Instead of facing up to the criticism of their behavior, their laxity, and even their disrespect to God, they wanted rid of the ones spotlighting their failures, particularly as he was gaining popular support. And you cannot control the crowds without great care. And it wasn't actually just the Sanhedrin who were faced with the question of Jesus' true identity. Others had to face it too, and it's my third point. What did others, who did others think Jesus was? Now, of course, that question had particular significance for John the Baptist, as we heard in our first reading. If you want to turn back to it, it's Luke chapter 7, and it's on page 1035. He was languishing in prison, facing a very uncertain future. He had announced the coming of the Christ, the one sent by God and promised by the prophets. But I suspected at this moment he was wobbling a bit. And he wanted reassurance that what he had announced really was so. In Luke chapter 7, verse 20, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Is your identity genuine or are you a fraud? And Jesus said to John's messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Interesting, isn't it? He's, he's saying, well, just look around. Make up your own mind. Actually, that's the whole point about Alpha. Alpha says, here's some evidence. Make up your own mind about Jesus' identity. Jesus then reviews what he has done. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In short, all that Jesus was doing matched the pattern expected of the Christ revealed in the Scriptures. That's what the Christ should look like. This is what Jesus looked like. What do you think? So in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. This is what the Christ should look like. 
Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from, from darkness of the prisoners. Now, you will recall that those were the very words Jesus read in the synagogue at Nazareth, adding this, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, what you've just read, I have read, is me. So John had his answer. Jesus was no identity thief. He was who he said he was. John could rest assured. And in this season leading up to Christmas, many people can be like those who, not the usual way of reading your detective story, you read the end before you read the beginning. You think, oh, I better know how it ends. No, no, with the Christmas events, they just read the beginning. They never read the rest of the story. They have no idea of the ending. They never know what happens next. What happens next? The baby grows up. I can tell you that with my grandchildren, thank goodness, who are here this morning. They're growing up and fast. But many never see that the baby in Bethlehem and all the amazing events surrounding his birth are the signposts pointing to the significance of his identity. It's like a great big finger from heaven saying, this is him. And of course, the disciples also were faced with exactly the same question as Mark records earlier in his gospel. Who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. So that's my third point. Who did others say that Jesus was? And so finally, my final fourth point. At Christmas, you get four points, not three. Why do I believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Because I had to consider Jesus' true identity. Was he who he said he was? A number of things led me to make the same conclusion as Peter. Here's the first one. The resurrection of Jesus truly happened, witnessed by over 500 people, including named individuals, Peter, the Twelve, James, Paul, and Paul who wrote in his letter to the Corinthians that most of the witnesses are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So if you don't believe me, go and talk to them. And it's never argued in Scripture. Why would you argue about something that everybody knew? And Paul, in the same letter, goes to the heart of the matter. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Why? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Nothing has happened. That is to say, Jesus' death on the cross was not the ransom price to pay for our sins and failures, those things we've said and done or failed to say or do that remain on our consciences. They will always remain unpaid for. We are neither forgiven and they're not forgotten. If Christ did not rise from the dead. And I read a book called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. It's a classic. 
and it talks about the, uh, about the resurrection. Incidentally, our bookstall is that our books are ridiculously cheap. You've got a long Christmas holiday. Rush there and buy one and read it and tell me what you learned from it. Well, it was a profound experience for me. He became convinced the resurrection happened, and therefore Jesus' crucifixion was not just one crucifixion amongst thousands that the Romans perpetrated. It was unique. His death was unique with eternal consequences. Now, this is where I can speak to some of the senior members of the church. Being brought up with the Book of Common Prayer, I love that part where Cranmer wrote in the communion services when we remember Jesus' death, that he died on the cross for our redemption, who made thou by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Cranmer was convinced. If you have the resurrection as happening, that shows that the crucifixion has paid for the sins of the world, has paid for your sins and mine. If it didn't happen, let's go home. This is a waste of time. Here's a second reason that led me to Peter's conclusion. It was Jesus' teaching in his life. He is an inspiring figure, and much of his teaching is respected even by those who wouldn't describe themselves as his followers. Jesus conquered hearts, not by military means, but by his grace, his generous, undeserved love towards us. And the way Jesus dealt with hostility, the dignity with which he faced his execution, forgiving his executioners, speaks of his integrity. There was the way he cared for the poor and the marginalized, the widows, the children, and the powerless. Now, I'm going to say something now that Tom, will, uh, our organist, will be delighted with. He is a railway buff. Uh, he knows all about railways. He knows about engines. And uh, try him after the service. And he knows what a wheel tapper was. A wheel tapper on steam engines was literally the man who tapped the wheels on the locomotive. He had a long-handled hammer... And when he tapped it, if it didn't ring clear, it meant that the wheel was cracked. Now, I meant to bring with me, uh, it's the same principle, a crystal glass. Marrying an Irish woman, we have lots of Waterford crystal, and if you ping it, it'll sound clear, because it's flawless. If it's cracked, it won't. It's exactly the same principle. I would like to say that I think Jesus' life is flawless as we read the evidence in Scripture, which incidentally did not fail to record the flaws of even great church leaders like Peter. And here's my third and final factor, drawing me to make the same conclusion as Peter, which came to me a little later, that Jesus is the Christ, namely the church. Many Christians over the generations have been prepared to face death rather than deny their faith in Jesus being the Christ. Indeed, that is so today, right up to the moment. And the first disciples were prepared to face death too. Surely they wouldn't have done that for something they knew to be a lie. Now, many have heard me joking reply uh, if I'm um, questioned about my job and I'm not wearing a clergy collar. I say, well, 
I work for a large international organization. It's got branches throughout the world. It's been going for hundreds of years, and it's still growing. Most questioners are puzzled, and some ask, which bank? And incidentally, I saw that the oldest surviving bank in the world is in deep financial trouble. It is the Banca Monte dei Paschi di Siena, founded only in 1472, a mere 540 years ago. The church is much older, 2,000 years old. So I reached my conclusion about Jesus many years ago that Jesus is the Christ. And I've bet my life on it. And so I would reply to the religious leader's question, by what authority are you doing these things? On the authority of God's Messiah sent to be the savior of the world. And so there will be many this Christmas who have read to the end of the story, who share with me the same faith in Jesus as the savior of the world and indeed my savior for my sins. So we have much to celebrate. We can have parties. We can sing the carols with real joy as we recall who it is we trust in and rely on and that he remains certain and faithful in an uncertain world. My goodness me, if we know what has happened in 2016, what on earth is going to happen in 2017? But others may still be considering for themselves the implications for their lives, whether Jesus was who many of us believe that he was. Or was he, in C.S. Lewis's words, simply mad or bad? Hauntingly, Christmas and all its celebrations poses that question every year. And God waits patiently for our answer. Who do you say I am? The religious establishment of Jesus' day gave their answer by their silence. Peter has given us his, and I have given you mine. What is your reply to that question? We're going to have a pause for a moment. I'm going to pray, and then the choir will sing, so we have time to celebrate, to think, to take the next step forward as we answer that question. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for John the Baptist's question and his answer, for Peter, for many disciples to the present day. May we have courage to give our answer as we consider the evidence that you have laid before us, that Jesus is who he truly said he is.